So you might notice that a lot of times I'll sit out in the foyer. And you may think I'm playing the part of a greeter, which I kind of do. I say hi to people. I mean, I don't get up, shake their hands, and show them where to sit all the time. Only if they're looking around like a deer in the headlights do I actually get up and actually help them find a seat. Or if there are no seats in the back, I'll take some down. But my primary purpose for being there, believe it or not, I'm kind of a Holy Spirit bouncer back there. Um, We found out that um, especially, well, during the, uh, the warmer months, that people would tend to come in to church already well on the way to being drunk. And then once they got in, they would get more drunk as they sat there. And after a while, they would become belligerent or at least vocal, and they would think the sermon was a dialogue, and they'd want to talk with me about it, right? Or who's ever up here. So um, we decided to have people back there. And in addition to doing all the fun stuff you do when you greet people when they come in and help them find chairs, we're also on the lookout for people who are too drunk, really, to participate in a worship service. If the Corinthians back in the first century, were out of line by being filled with the Holy Spirit sometimes. We figure people who come filled with the wrong kind of spirits can be totally out of line so we can bring some kind of discipline to that. So it's hard to tell. So I remember one time a few people came up and I saw one guy who was kind of coming up the stares slowly, but he seemed fine. I mean, we're not jerks, right? You can come in. If you're a little a little buzzed, it's like, okay, fine, just come in. But he must have been just drinking because he got progressively more lit as the service progressed. And I remember being out there on the porch, and all of a sudden the song ended, and I heard, run a man, run a man. Run and run. And I'm going, what is going on in there? And I go in to look, and another song had already started, and the yelling had stopped. And so I thought, okay, we'll let it go. And so that song ends. I'm out on the porch again, and then all of a sudden, I hear the shouting again. And so I come in, and I hear this guy that I'd let in sitting back there about where Lala is, and he was saying, turn around! Turn around, turn around. And so Evan Perkins, who was on staff, was sitting right in front of him, and Evans had turned around 180 degrees trying to figure out what this guy wanted. And so I'm thinking, okay, I just got to get him outside. So I went over, and I said, hey, Joe, that's not his name. I said, hey, Joe, let's, uh, let's go out in the foyer. You can talk to me. Tell me what's going on. And so, we're, and so I was a little upset with myself for having let him in through my, uh, you know, Holy Spirit bouncer duties. And uh, so I got a little tough with him. And I said, Joe, you're being disrespectful. Why are you doing that? You're shouting out in the middle of the service. And he got angry right away back at me. Next thing I know, I'm being cussed at, up one side, down the other. He takes off in a huff down for the 7-Eleven. I'm going, okay, well, 
That didn't go so well, but at least the service is quieter now. About 20 minutes later, Joe comes back. I'm standing on the porch. He's on the sidewalk. He says, Pastor, you were right. I was being disrespectful. I'm sorry. And I said, Joe, listen, I'm sorry. I was a little tough with you, and I'm apologizing too. So let's just start over from here. And he says, well, you know, surely, surely the the worship team knows that song. I'm going, what? You know that song. It's on K-Love, the Christian station, all the time. It's called Turn Around. I'm saying, you're calling out a request? Yeah, it's a great song. They got to know it. I said, Joe, you know, probably they don't know it. They practiced the set beforehand. You know, I'm thinking it's a song about repentance and I'm a jerk. I am a total jerk. Because I had pegged this guy somewhere on a line of faith way back from where he actually was. You know? I had misjudged his heart and his journey. And so today we're going to talk about the journey of faith, kind of a faith line we're going to talk about. So I want you to pay attention as we go through this part of Acts chapter 19. There's a bunch of people in this story, and they're all in different places. See if you can put them on some kind of a continuum or a spectrum. So if you've got a Bible, you can open to Acts 19, and we're going to start with verse number 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, now Apollos was a different guy. He's kind of a teacher guy that shows up at the end of the last chapter. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Can we show that map that's before there? So you can see the map of where Paul's coming from, that red line, and Ephesus is where he ends up over there. Now, just so you know, Paul, um, yeah, you can go back to that. Paul stays in Ephesus for about three years. So it's one of the places he stayed the longest in trying to establish a church. So Paul took the road through the interior, arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And disciples is the Greek word learner. In mathites, it means just somebody who's learning, Okay. There he found some disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No. We have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is, in Jesus. So, John the Baptist's message really was turn around. (laughs) Repent. Go the opposite direction of which way you're going. Get ready for the coming of God in the flesh. And the way you get ready for the coming of God in the flesh is that you repent. You're doing wrong things, you stop them. You're not doing the right things. You start doing those things. That was John the Baptist's 
message. And it really was kind of a threat. The preaching of Jesus is good news. But John the Baptist didn't give you any illusions. He knew that he was pointed to the one still yet to come, Jesus. He would say, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He was a prophet, spoke like a prophet. And John's preaching was necessary. Because there's kind of two stages to our walks with God. I was reading about um, the life of Billy Graham this week. And even though Billy Graham was a pretty good high school kid of 16 years old, didn't do a lot of things wrong, it was the preaching of Mordecai Ham that convicted him that he was a sinner, that he needed to be saved. He's a pretty good kid. But he got struck to the quick with the message of repentance. And repentance is always the message that gets you ready for the message of Jesus. You've got to know that you're a sinner. That you're separated from God. That you're in danger of eternal judgment if you don't change. And that's amazing how that opens you up to the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, if John the Baptist's message was all there was, it'd be kind of alarming. But Jesus comes, and he has the final word. And John knows he has the final word. And so, Paul asked them, Did they receive the Holy Spirit? Hang on. Yes. Let's go to verse 5. And so, he places his hands on them and has them baptized in the name of the Holy of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit comes on them. Paul asked them, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Like, when you came to faith, did you have an experience of the Holy Spirit? And they say, no, we don't even know there was a Holy Spirit. You see, when you come to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is there. All the time. Every time. Not one person has come to Jesus who didn't have an experience with the Holy Spirit if that person came heart, mind, body, and soul. Jesus teaches us in John chapter 3, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of the Spirit. That can't happen without the Spirit. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... They do not belong to Christ. So you see, coming to Jesus and getting the Holy Spirit are the same thing. Jesus said, I want you guys to hold on because it's coming. And when you get the Holy Spirit, it's going to change your life. You're going to be my witnesses 
not just in Jerusalem, but in the surrounding area, out to Samaria out there, and then to the ends of the earth. It's going to change you. Things are going to be different. So when a person is baptized in the Holy Spirit, they are baptized at a point in time. When you truly accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. God is not fooled. You can say the words and nothing may happen. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is not something that you can make happen by saying the right arrangement of words or a prayer. It comes from above. It's being born from above. You can't make it happen. But when it happens, you know it's happened to you. For we are all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free. And we were given the one Spirit to drink, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. Now after that, there are different kinds of fillings of the Spirit. Don't get me wrong. You need to be filled with the Spirit continually. Peter was filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost so he could preach. And then he was filled again later. And then he was filled again later to do something else. And you're thinking, what is this filling of the Spirit? Well, the filling of the Spirit is because we leak in between those fillings. It, and we just have to keep being refilled. That's the way. But you're baptized once. And that's when you finally come to Jesus, heart, mind, body, and soul. And you can tell when people are baptized by the Spirit. Things change. I was talking to one guy just this past week. He is now in some theological studies. He used to be a member of the Latin Kings gang. He was in high school. He was supposed to kill a crip the next day. That was part of his initiation. And the Holy Spirit came on him through... Uh, belief in Christ through some Christians he had met, and kids in the lunch line were saying, you look different. Because the Holy Spirit had baptized him, and his countenance had changed. Let's go back to verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus where they had been baptized with John's baptism before. Now they're baptized as Christians. They weren't Christians before. Now they are. They were learners before who knew something about John the Baptist and what Jesus was going to do, but they weren't Christians yet. So they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul placed his hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them. They spoke in tongues and prophesied, just like happened to the apostles in Acts chapter 2. There are about 12 men in all. Verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. He's in the Jewish synagogue, a place for discussion, and he's discussing with the Jews about the kingdom of God, about how Jesus is the Messiah. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and they publicly maligned the way, which is what Christians were called at this particular point. They were called the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia 
heard the word of the Lord. So, picture this. Paul's in the synagogue for three months. He's carrying on debates and arguing. Some of the Jews there get very upset with him, very obstinate. Basically, he says, okay, I'm not going to force you to listen to this anymore. He goes and he rents a hall, the hall of Tyrannus. Some guy's named Tyrant, and that's his hall. And uh, most commentators think that Paul was renting it during the siesta hours, between 11 and 4 or something like that. And so he would just use that as a venue to carry on the debates. And now it was open, not just to the Jews in the synagogue, but all the Gentiles were free to come in because it was just a lecture hall, a secular lecture hall. And so debate about the faith went on from there. And God spread the word through the people who were coming in and out of the lecture hall. Now it gets interesting. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. All right, a little excitement here. So, the name of Jesus has power. And even though the Jews, many of whom did not listen to Paul and wanted nothing to do with it, other Jews were listening going, wait a minute, there might be something to this guy. We can use this in our day-to-day work. Now, something you need to know about Ephesus, where Paul is, the city at this time. Ephesus is a city that is like steeped in the occult. It was a fairly large city. It was a great marketplace. Had a lot of money going through it because of the port. And it was attracting all kinds of people. And kind of like how Salem, Massachusetts is now for us, kind of a, a hub of uh, witchcraft and sorcery. Ephesus was like that back during the first century. And so, I don't know if you've ever been around people who believe in the occult and who converse with demonic forces and do spells and incantations, but you know, they believe this stuff works. And they have all sorts of practices that reinforce this kind of behavior. So, for Jesus' name to be used, that's just like, oh, one more abracadabra. Jesus, the name of Jesus is better than abracadabra. Let's use that when we're casting out demons. Because it seems to work. We've seen Paul do it quite a bit. And so, these seven sons of Sceva, you know, sons of a chief priest. I don't know what kind of chief priest is in Ephesus. Um, Maybe a defrocked chief priest who had to leave the country and set up shop there. I have no idea where this guy comes from. It's kind of a weird thing. Nobody really understands what this means. 
And there was a band uh, back in the 90s, a punk band, I think. It was called Black-Eyed Skiva. And it came from, from this passage, Black-Eyed Skiva. They changed their name later. It wasn't a great name. But um, so, so these guys are kind of doing the occult thing with the name of Jesus. And it didn't work. Spirit knew the difference. You see, if you have come to Jesus with your heart, mind, body, and soul and turn yourself over to Him and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, you're protected. This is what I hate about modern occult horror movies is they give you the wrong impression that you are not safe or protected from evil forces when you have Jesus because you are protected. The name of Jesus does have power. I've been in situations where there was an evil presence in the room. I could not see it. It was black as night. I just knew it was huge and large and more powerful than me. I mean, if we were talking power, I would have this much power and this thing would be as tall as the ceiling. I knew it just lying there, petrified, waking up, not knowing what to do. And all I could say was, in the name of Jesus, get out of here. And in the name of Jesus, get out of here. And, the name, and it finally left. The presence left. Because the name of Jesus is more powerful than any demon. And the Holy Spirit is inside of me. I wasn't faking it like the sons of Sceva were. It was the real deal. And Jesus came through. And I've seen this happen plenty of times. I've been involved in deliverance sessions. I've seen demons come out of people. Jesus' name is powerful. And people have been set free. Their, their whole countenance changes after they've been delivered from oppression or even possession. But it doesn't work if you're just using Jesus' name like abracadabra. You need Him living inside of you. The Holy Spirit sealing your soul as a guarantee that you're in Christ. Verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. Let me repeat that. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. A drachma was a day's wage. So we're talking $5 million to $7 million worth of occult books and scrolls and paraphernalia. Verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. 
After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little while longer. All right. Now, this is great storytelling. I'm going to ask you to step back for a second. Let's take a look at some of the characters that we've been introduced to in this very true story. We have people who go all the way from the demon-possessed to an apostle who is spreading the word of Jesus and performing miracles. Right? That's a pretty wide spectrum. So let's see if my line of faith actually shows up here. So I've made this little line of faith so that we can take a look and think about it for a minute. Now, if the cross in the middle is where people come to Jesus for the first time, if that's their point of conversion, when they're filled with the Holy Spirit, when their soul testifies that they're saved, then on the left side is kind of the negative numbers, and on the right side would be the positive numbers. All right, so demon-possessed guy, verse 15, we put him kind of near the bottom, right? I mean, when you're demon-possessed, you're pretty far away from believing in Jesus at the moment. And then there's the um, obstinate Jews. Remember the guys who kicked Paul out of the synagogue? Kind of put them a little bit closer. I mean, after all, they're not demon-possessed. They're just angry and maybe self-righteous. And then Sceva's sons come next because they're Jews. They believe in God uh, and they think the name of Jesus is something special. So they're a little closer to Jesus and the end of the line on the other side than the obstinate Jews. And then we come to those honoring Jesus' name in verse 17. Those are the people um, who began to talk after all that stuff happened. They go, wow, you know, Jesus' name, that's pretty amazing. Like, there's something to Him. Like, they're closer. And then um, you got John the Baptist's disciples in verse 2. I mean, they're active learners. They want to know more about God and they're, 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 they're seeking, they're actively going, but they're not Christians yet. And then the lecture hall peeps, they're kind of half in, half out. Some probably believe in Jesus who are going to the lecture hall, right? Newly formed comments, would, converts would keep going back to, to listen and learn. But there are some people who are coming who don't know if they believe in Jesus, just want to check them out. Kind of like I did when I was in high school going to that Bible study. I didn't believe in Jesus. I made fun of the passages we were looking at. Hey, is this a fairy tale I read once? But I was looking. I was trying to find out if it was true or not. You know, but I, so everybody that comes to church is not a Christian. I know this. 
fact, I kind of like the idea that everybody who comes to scum of the earth is not a Christian. I kind of like us being this little outpost right here on the perimeter of God's kingdom where some people who never heard can actually come in, listen, make a determination, try to figure out if Jesus is really the Christ or not, and maybe they'll go back out into the world. Maybe they'll come into the kingdom. I don't know. But you see, I think church like this... So if you're not a believer and you're here, you're welcome to be here. We love people coming and asking questions while seeking truth. We think it's a really great thing. There's no judgment on our part. If you don't believe Jesus is the Christ, well, you know, you will. Because He is. But we're not going to be mad at you because you don't. We... We like people who ask questions. Let's come there. It's been about that for 17 years. Now, this may sound funny, but just after that, we have the scroll burners. It says in verse 19, 18 and 19 that the people who burned their scrolls were believers. They had come to Christ. And they were convicted by all this stuff going on. And they said, we got to burn all of our occult books in our scrolls because there's some bad juju that goes along with that stuff. And since this is like one of the first steps they take as new Christians to get rid of that stuff that is dragging them back down into the darkness. I was talking to Larry. Larry's burned some things like this. He said, Mike, you would not believe the size of the flames coming out of that 50-gallon drum. He goes, they were going 20 feet in the air. He goes, it was weird. And I'm thinking, I'm glad I wasn't there. Because I don't like demons. I don't like being around them. I mean, I'll deal with them if they show themselves in my face. Larry goes out looking for them, hunting them, you know. That's what Larry does. But the scroll burners are believers. That's why they're getting rid of that junk. If you're a believer here at Scum, and you've got Ouija boards, and you've got crystal balls, or you've got any kind of special occultic paraphernalia, I urge you to get rid of it. Burn it. Do what these guys did. It's going to hold you back. It's going to remind you of things you don't need to be reminded of. It's like the devil has got just a little fingernail in you. When he wants to pull you back, he's got some place to pull. You don't want that to happen. You got any stuff like that, any occultic stuff, any tarot cards, Anything like that. Get rid of it. Burn it. Throw it away. Whatever you got to do. And then, farther up, we've got Timothy and Erastus, who are obviously kind of junior apostles, right? And then Paul, who has started this whole thing off in verse number 1 by coming to Ephesus on his last missionary journey. And Paul is actually following Jesus, who's way up that line. Jesus is in heaven, waiting 
for all these folks to come His way. From Paul, the one who's closest to Him, to the demon-possessed guy who's the farthest away. Because Jesus loves every single person on that faith line, whether they have faith, whether they don't, whether they're in the positive section or the negative section. So what's our responsibility after reading a passage like this? I think it's obviously to move up the faith line. I'd say most people that come to the earth, I mean, they were probably in the center portion of that line. Kind of not yet this not yet Christians just became Christians, right? But it seems to me to be part of our responsibility to reach back to folks who are behind us and help them come forward closer to Jesus. Now, if you just got out of the occult, like, for example, if I were the pastor of the scroll burners, I would not suggest the scroll burners immediately go back down to the demon-possessed people and started bringing them. <laughs> I'm going, you know what? No, let's, let's, let's mature a bit first. Let's get cleaned up a bit first. I mean, I don't think maybe you're the one to do that right now. You can certainly pray for that. So you've got to exercise some wisdom in this whole thing. But I think overall, the idea is, is that we pull people up the faith line with us. That's what Erastus and Timothy are going to do. That's what Paul's going to go do as well. Maybe, maybe your task with someone is only to bring them from like negative four to negative three. That's all you're supposed to do. Like you're not supposed to maybe say the prayer of salvation with the person. All you want to do is give them a positive loving example of what a real Christ follower looks like and sounds like. Maybe that's all you're supposed to do. You're sitting next to somebody at work. They think Christians are a bunch of jerks, especially after the last election, they say. And all you're supposed to do is provide some kind of difference from what they're seeing in the media. Maybe that's all you're supposed to do. Or maybe uh, blow some stereotypes about Christians they have out of the water. That Christians are always judgmental. That they're always boring. That they talk funny. That they dress funny. And, and your job is to be something different than that. Or maybe you bring them from like a negative three to a negative two. Like you shoot some holes, some very needed holes in their belief system that doesn't make any sense. Like you show them the inconsistencies of what they claim to believe. That somehow there's this God in the universe 
but he doesn't care a lick what you do. I mean, everybody, everybody wants to be spiritual but not religious, right? That means we believe in a God who lets you do whatever you want. So, you know, Mother Teresa is okay and pedophiles are okay. Whatever you want to do. I mean, that's the kind of belief system you can poke a hole in really, really easily. There's got to be some kind of absolute morality. Maybe you're supposed to reason with them. Explain a spiritual truth to them. Correct a misunderstanding they have about Jesus and the Bible. To show them something about the Bible or the church that they didn't know before. Maybe you're supposed to answer a question. Maybe you're supposed to counter an objection they have. Now, they probably won't accept Christ that day. But you haven't failed when you've done your part to help people move up the faith line. You've been part of a long chain of believers who have helped nudge them from negative four to negative three to negative two to negative one to faith in Jesus. Getting closer and closer to home. So keep talking. Keep sharing. Keep loving. Keep planting those seeds. God is using you every day, whether you realize it or not, to move people up this faith line. And let me conclude by saying, I don't know where you are, but wherever you are, let's move a step closer to Jesus tonight. During uh, the communion, I'll be back there in the prayer cave with some other folks. If you don't know Jesus and you want to go from negative one to zero, we will be there to talk with you and help you understand what that step is. If you have questions about the faith, you want to go from like a negative three to a negative two, we'll be happy to try and answer some of those questions for you. I'd like to close by asking you to think about one person in your life that helped you move up the faith line. Just think of one person. Maybe it was from negative four to negative three. Maybe it was from positive one to positive three. Okay, just think of that, think of that person's first name. All right? And so all I'm going to ask you right now is just one at a time, just shout out the first name of the person who helped move you up that line by God's grace. This, I'm sorry. Nikki. Troy. Bruce. One more time. Don. Paul. Joe. David. Mike. Jacob, Jason, John, Hope, Elijah, Patrick. You see, no one can tell. I'm sorry, let me put it this way. Anybody can count the apples on a tree, right? But no one can count 
the amount of apples in a seed. Anybody can count the amount of apples on a tree, but nobody can calculate the amount of apples within a seed. These people planted seeds in your life. You will be planting seeds in other people's lives. Let's keep moving people farther up the faith line. Let's say a prayer. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for being faithful to put people in our paths who move us closer to you. I ask that not only would we be grateful, remember to pray for those people and thank you for them, but Lord, use us in the same way. Let us become people like the Apostle Paul, like Timothy and Erastus, who help move folks closer to you, who help honor your name in this world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.